So today I'm really excited to have as my guest on on site uh, Martin Nussbaum, who is the principal at Slate Property Group. Uh, someone who's a client of cause we're actually working on a really exciting project on the Upper West Side together. Uh, during the last five years, Slate Property Group has purchased in excess of $4 billion in real estate assets. I want my, uh, Martin to talk a little bit more about that, but very excited to have Martin Nussbaum on site. So Martin, thanks really for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So um, you know that really the premise of OnSite is to interview people who I feel are kind of forward-thinking and who are changing the cities and the landscape of the cities and the skylines of the cities that we live in globally. And I think Slate uh, and you personally are doing that in a very significant way. I don't think a lot of people know too much about what you're doing, but maybe you could just give me a broad stroke on some of the stuff you're working on and what Slate as a company's business mission is. First, I want to thank you for having us. I, you know, me, I appreciate it, um, and your kind words are way exaggerated, but they're appreciated. You know, our company started in 2012. Since then, we have really focused on residential development and acquisitions of existing buildings throughout New York, with a serious focus on existing multifamily repositioning in Manhattan and purchasing of land for ground-up development in Brooklyn and Queens. So over this period of time, we've probably purchased north of 50 different properties, um, as small as 20 to 30 units to as many as 500 to 600 units, and the majority of which um, we still currently own and and operate. Um, The portfolio is split between rental, which is about 75% of our portfolio, Um, and about 25% are condo projects. So our thought process behind the business and really a thesis behind the business is to generate returns that are appropriate with the risk taken on each transaction. And we spend a lot of time thinking through how to create markets within the different specific micro markets of each one of the areas of, of New York. And by that, I mean... We really spend time on each one of the properties, depending on its location, within different streets, within different boroughs, within different areas of of New York, and then cater that product type to that specific location. And often what it has led to by just purchasing the amount of property is the amount of data we've been able to gather has led to us then using that data to continue to reach out to other markets that potentially are not yet seen by most of the competitors that we go up against in terms of the purchases that we make. So I think our long-term goal is to continue to buy good real estate, develop well-thought-out and appropriately-priced product, and try to maintain that portfolio for the long haul. Okay, so you just said a lot, and I'm going to try and break it down for the less sophisticated listener like myself. I mean, congratulations. That's, I mean, it sounds like you amassed a huge portfolio very strategically and done very well doing it. Where do you get the money to do all of this? How do you purchase so much real estate? When we started our business, myself and my partner really started the business by raising money from friends and family 
and people that we had known for a long time in the business. And that was the way that we capitalized our first handful of deals. How does that conversation go? You, you, you're going to raise money from friends and family. What is that conversation like? Sure. So it's funny because the, the, the first deals are always the hardest deals to do, as I'm sure everyone's experienced in their careers. And then from there, it actually, assuming you do a good job and the market's behind your back a little bit, which I think we were lucky that it was, it gets a little bit easier and easier as you're able to build your business and build your track record. But the first deals are very much about people that, that I knew for 10, 15 years in my career so that when I went on my own and I said, hey, I'm going to buy this building on the Lower East Side. I remember the first building I bought was a small 20-unit studio apartment building um, on the Lower East Side. Um, I had to raise approximately $900,000, and it was the hardest $900,000 I've ever raised um, in my life. And it really was door-to-door speaking with people that have that understand sort of where I came from, understand sort of how we were looking at the deals. And there was a tremendous amount of trust just put into that specific deal. So what came first, like the money or the deal? You know, because in order to go to to buy a building, you need to go to contract. In order to go to contract, you have to negotiate with a seller. Did you negotiate the deal, get a contract, and then figure out, okay, I've got to go find the money now to pay for the deal? Or how did that all play out? Yeah, I, I think that's the one big risk that I think everyone has to take at some point in their career when they go on their own is really believing in the ability to get something done based off of your belief in the specific transaction and your capabilities to do it. So on that specific deal, I actually put up hard money deposit and then went out and raised the money after that. So there was potentially a risk that I could have lost money, but I really took the risk at that specific moment, felt it was the right deal um, and the right time and had done enough back channeling to people that were going to be investing with me that they knew I was going to be coming to them at some point. It was a matter of when and how. And so what did that look like? How many partners did you have in that deal? And how long did it take you to raise that capital? We had probably in the range of 10 to 15 partners. So it was all small investments from just, you know, some, a a close group of, of friends. And it took probably about a month to raise the capital and we had to close a month later. So the risk in sort of that first deal and and the sleepless nights that I had was trying to time all of that because as you're sort of gearing up with a bank to close on a loan and you're raising money from friends and family and you're trying to get your business plan in order, there was a lot of running around um, that required a lot of energy. Um, and at that time, there wasn't some big infrastructure behind the company. It was basically me and a couple of other people. Um, and once we closed the loan, I lived and breathed that deal for 12 months. I'd wake up every morning and I personally went to this property and you know worked every aspect of it from start to finish. And that really was how I sort of started to really understand the day-to-day operations of running your own business and what it took. And that deal, so it's interesting, it's an interesting story, that deal led to me buying my second deal because every day I was on the street, on Suffolk Street, every morning at 7 a.m., you know, working this building, and I got to know every single other person on the street at 7 a.m. Um, one of those landed up being the super of a building directly across the street, and I ultimately worked out a way for me to buy that building just because I was just there every day, and that it sort of organically grew. Um, the business, frankly, organically grew from there, but 
because I was buying coffee every morning for the for the super across the street, it led to me meeting the owner and led to me buying that building as my second building that I ever purchased. I love that story. It's it's awesome. So how many years ago was that was that? So that was in the and the beginning of 2010. So over the last 10 years, you've grown. I mean, congratulations. That's really an amazing story. And I think it's really inspiring. And there's, a, there's so much in that story. You know, I think a lot of people think you build a business overnight or you're lucky and you get things handed to you. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, business is built one, one brick at a time. And you really have to be hands-on and there's, there are no shortcuts. And I think, you know, that story that you just told is kind of a great example of that. But, you know, having said that, in 10 years, which is not that long of a time, you've built this huge portfolio. How do you have the time now to, like, look at deals, you know, having spent $5 billion? How do you select the deals? How, how big is your company and how, how much resource do you have to go through your deals? What is that process? So, you know, obviously the company has grown gradually in the beginning and then significantly as the company has continued to sort of expand. And at this point, we have almost 150 employees full time um, in the company, and that's throughout all different divisions within the company. But specific to acquisitions, we have a full acquisitions team that um, sources, uh, generates the actual leads that bring into the company. Myself and my partner are probably the main sources of those um, new deals. But then once they're brought in, we have a whole team of people who will then underwrite the deal, comp the deal, walk the properties, get the deal into a place where we've assessed it in every different way we need to, to come up with a value at which we would be comfortable purchasing a piece of land or or a specific building. Are you still so hands-on right now? Do you look at every deal? Do you walk every building? A hundred percent. I mean, any, you know, any building that we start to really get involved in or any piece of land that we start to really dive into, um, myself and my partner will walk the building, will walk the area. You know, the truth is, as we've continued to sort of be in this market, you sort of start to understand every street and every building. I mean, I could name you a hundred buildings that we've worked on um, that we didn't win, that, you know, who bought it, how, how it traded, what happened to it afterwards, you really become like a master of your specific space when you spend so much time on it. Um, you know, we have weekly acquisitions meetings where we sit down around the table and we run through every single deal that's on the market, every single deal that we're interested in pursuing that's on the market and what the current status is, you know, in terms of our negotiations of potentially buying it. I have to ask this, which is the one that got away or ones, plural? There's so many that got away. I mean, the one, the one that I actually remember that got away that hurt the most only because of the way it got away from us was actually, I think it's actually a building that you actually did the sales on, um, which was the Verizon building in Midtown West. So, yeah. Walker Tower. Yeah. Yeah. We were yeah. at the closing table with deposit money and fully negotiated contract on that deal from the seller and at the table the seller was in the room with someone else at the same time next to us got an agreement with them and came into our our the conference room where i was sitting and said i really appreciate all your time we've gone a different direction and just walked out of the room so that oh one was the one that, that was super painful only for for a couple of reasons but mostly because i really thought the building was a great building and as i'm sure you've experienced it did very well at the end of the day we had a great basis. We had a great partnership set up to take down the deal. 
we just got taken advantage of. It was a lesson learned. It was like I was put into the water with a bunch of sharks and I came out with a couple of bites and unfortunately, um, lesson learned. It took some wounds. It took a while for the wounds to heal, but when they healed, you learn a lot from it. Right. So what was the lesson you learned? How would you have done that differently to like make sure you were on the winning end of that deal? I would never let that guy speak to another person. I would literally live outside of his house until he signed a deal with me. And that's the lesson I've learned in New York in general. There's so many smart, aggressive, successful people in the business that when it's your turn to take, when you have your window of opportunity, if you don't literally jump through that window, no matter what's in front of you, you will lose because someone else will jump. Right. So the interesting thing about that deal is, and I remember it very clearly because I walked the building with Michael Stern before he actually closed. And that was 2008. And you know as well as I do that 2008, you know, the global financial crisis had already happened and no one was buying anything. And I think it took a really big set of balls, so to speak, to actually buy anything in the city at that time. And you were obviously looking to buy. I mean, that was a great asset. But, you know, what are your thoughts about that moment in time? And why were you, you know, actively looking and not just shell-shocked like the rest of the real estate industry in New York? So, you know, you had said before that, you know, luck isn't everything in terms of how people build their careers. But I do think it is part of it, very honestly. Like, I think we do a phenomenal job at everything we do. And We've built a real infrastructure now to operate a business, but I do think that in any business, there's a little bit of luck that happens. So at the time, I was um, when I first started, you know, on my own, I had no legacy assets. So in 2009, you know, eight, nine, and ten, when there was a lot of pain in the real estate market and just generally in the in the economic environment throughout the United States and the world, I was unencumbered by anything. On a negative note, it meant that there wasn't much to do for two years because I was sitting and pounding my head against the wall while there wasn't much going on. And for reasons that made a lot of sense, the economy was upside down. But on a positive note, when the economy started to have a little bit of fresh air in it, I was completely unencumbered. I was a fresh face and I was aggressive and able to sort of pounce on anything that was in front of me because I wasn't dealing with a lot of legacy issues that a lot of other people that I know were dealing with. I don't know if that's luck. I don't know if it's a timing thing. It didn't feel like luck for the 18 months that I sat and did nothing. But once I came out of it, and in 2000, and at the end of 2009 through 2012, we were very aggressive. And then from 12 until 15, we had another big push. You know, that period of time was when we took the business from being relatively small to being a you know a medium sized nice operating business that we have today. Yeah, I mean now we look at the market we're in right now, right in 2020, and the general consensus amongst the real estate industry now is that the market's kind of terrible. You know, there's so many segments that are suffering. Uh, retail probably being maybe the worst. But you know, residential that market is kind of soft right now. The condo market has got its challenges. What do you think of the market now? Where do you see the opportunities? Look, I think the market is definitely changing. It has changed, and I, and I don't disagree with you. I think the retail market has definitely suffered the most. Our portfolio is probably less than 10% retail, um, so we're not heavily retail-driven. But I think just so you know, the retail that we do have, I think retail is such a difficult asset class right now because retail is still doing okay. The other 90%, it's very challenging to know 
where or even if there are any sort of takers at any price. So I think you're seeing a huge question mark around that. But back to the residential component of it, on the rental side of our portfolio, it's stable. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just very stable and consistent. And I honestly think that the the big part of our portfolio intentionally is a cash flowing piece of business. We have done condos and we're doing condos now. And that's a part of our business, but we have always built a business that's based off of cash flow because during times like this, um, you know, maybe you don't make as much money as you hope to have made, but you're still covering, you're covering your debt service, you're covering your operating expenses, and you're making a little bit of money while you're doing that. And you're fighting through a market that is going through a change. But one thing that we all have known, and it's, it's, it's historical as well as like New York City We'll go through some ups and downs, but it'll bounce back. And I feel very strongly that the market will bounce back in some period of time. And we're going to be there with these same assets and hopefully additional ones to take advantage of it when it starts to bounce back and sort of see some growth to it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing a changing city, though. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, Bloomberg was a great mayor. He really built the city to be, you know, the safest big city in, in the world just it's had so many positive initiatives that kind of trickled down onto the streets. You know, now we have kind of a political environment where we're seeing an economic environment where we're seeing a third of the retail in the city vacant. We're seeing a lot more homeless people in the subways and on the sidewalks. The whole city seems to be covered in scaffolding. Uh, you've got companies that want to come here like Amazon that are being chased out of town by, you know, politicians who don't want to attract those types of tenants for one reason or another. Um, you've got people in Albany passing laws that are kind of really not conducive to your business or helping you in any way. Um, you still feel bullish and and positive about where we're going? You know, not to get political on it, because I'm going to stay away from that question, but I think um, I think more just purely as an investor and as a real estate person, I think it's a little bit of a wait and see and sort of see how the market adjusts to all those things you brought up and see where it lands up settling. Um, I think right now, I wouldn't say I'm bullish on the market. I would say that we're sitting in the market with a lot of data, keeping our finger on the pulse to understand how all of these changes are going to impact values and rents and growth and interest from capital partners to be able to take advantage of the opportunity once we see a trend that we think is something that's interesting. So I don't think that anyone today would say that they're overly bullish about the New York market, um, other than saying that it is nonetheless still New York City, um, and it's one of a kind, and still continues to be sort of the epicenter of global economy for the most part. And with that, I feel like over time, once pricing adjusts and values adjusts and we get a little bit more stability about how the market is moving, there'll be a lot of interest again. And what I find interesting is we're seeing a lot of other real estate people sort of bowing out of this market and going to other markets and changing asset classes or changing businesses. And I think this is an opportunity for companies that have stability, strength, and the long-term vision to fight through this kind of market and be in a great position with a lot less competition when the market turns around, which we're hopeful it will. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite building in the city? 
I don't know off the top of my head. I'm gonna, I'll come back to you on that one. Okay. And by the way, it doesn't have to necessarily be one that you own. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> I actually think that a lot of times, like the buildings, the buildings that I actually think about in my portfolio that I love the most are the ones that people wouldn't understand only because it's the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. It's not the prettiest ones. Right. Um, what I love about the way you talk is you say we a lot. It's not like I, I, I. So, you know, maybe talk to me a little bit about your partnership, your partner, um, how how you became partners and kind of what that relationship means to you. Yeah, sure. You know, my partner, um, whose name is David Schwartz, and I have known each other for probably north of 20 years, sort of post-college, got to become friendly and spent some time together. Um, and he's been in the real estate business for as long as I have, called about 20 years. Um, and we've just always shared very similar perspectives on sort of real estate and how we understand it and how we look at it. And we were both working for different companies at one point, and we were sort of looking to see if we could do a deal together between our companies and really start to spend some time together. And over, over a course of 10 years, got to really understand each other um, from a business sense, from a personal sense, and share a lot of the same values on both of those sides that today continues to keep us, you know, very connected and, and, you know, running a business that we, we generally, you know, 85, 90% of the time share the exact same vision on. So we do very different things, which I think is good. And we complement each other in a positive way, which is, in my opinion, the best type of partnerships. I think often partnerships where people are doing the same things and stepping on each other's toes is where ones that can become difficult. And that's just not how we operate our business. We both know sort of where each one of us is strong or weak, and we try to accommodate that to create the best business that we can. I'm hopeful that we continue this relationship indefinitely, and I think the feeling is mutual for both of us. But I want to say that, that one other thing to add to the comment of we, it's not just myself and my partner. I mean, like we have people who've been working for us since day one who are part of this company. And in my mind, when I use the word we, I use the word we collectively as a firm. Because I really believe that when you start to run a business that isn't just you by yourself or one or two people, you're only as good as the people who are working with you. And I think fortunately, we've built a really nice infrastructure here that's been with us for a while that continues to sort of be the core of the entire company. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, just, you know, working together, you've, you've definitely built a unique culture in a really positive way. You know, your people are like-minded. It's a, it's a great environment. You know, I think that definitely shows. Um, how do you and, and your partner communicate? Do you guys sit in the offices next to each other? Do you email all the time? Are you on the phone? Do you have a weekly meeting? What's, what does that look like? We do sit in offices next to each other. The truth is, is that we probably don't spend a lot of time face-to-face -face in the office, you know, as much as obviously we're, you know, we're, we're in meetings together all the time. But I, what I'll tell you is that my, my partner and I are on the phone, are texting, are in communication from 6 a.m. in the morning until midnight, seven days a week. So, you know, we're in constant contact with each other about what's happening, bouncing ideas off of each other, if those are new deals or existing deals, good or bad, how we want to handle certain situations you know, from a business perspective and frankly, from a personal perspective, I, you know, the two of us, you know, I've known each other for a long time and we know each other's families and we, 
we share a lot of similarities around that side of our lives also. So, you know, when people are like, hey, do you set up weekly meetings? The answer is no, because I speak to him 15 times a day. I speak to him more than I speak to anyone. <laughs> but you, you have, uh, you got four daughters? I do. How many hours a day do you work? It's all hours, you know, like I'll give me, like I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's interesting because people are like, hey, I like to put my phone away at night and put it in my bathroom so I don't see it. I sleep with my phone next to me. Um, I wake up in the middle of the night at four o'clock. I'm not a great sleeper. So I wake up in the middle of the night at three, four, five o'clock in the morning and I'll grab my phone and work for an hour and then go back to sleep. And that's seven days a week. It's just the way that I operate. I'm just sort of wired to do that. But at the same time, when it's time to be with the family or with the family. And I think as the company's grown, it's given me the flexibility to actually put the phone away and put work away for chunks of time so that you can properly dedicate it to the most important part of your life, quite frankly, which is your family. So as we've grown and as we've gotten the right infrastructure in place and the right personnel in place and the right systems in place, it's really frankly allowed the, the business to run much more cleaner and allowed me to have the opportunity to focus on the high level things in the company as well as the real problems in the company and that's really the focus of my personal time is dealing with that kind of stuff and not necessarily the day-to-day routine right i know personally it's it's a lot to juggle right you got you raising four children you're running a company you've got 150 plus staff you you know it's a lot um do you have like a daily ritual or like a, a structure that gives you consistency and um, an order or is it is like every day is completely different? No, I actually am very much like a creature of habit. Every day I wake up around six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm either getting the kids out of bed and into school and all that sort of stuff, which is which is a heavy lift or alternatively, I'm in the gym probably by six thirty. And, you know, I have a very like rigid routine in the morning that really helps me focus and gets me in the right mindset day to day, which is, you know, a workout routine followed by like honestly a half hour by myself with several cups of coffee. I'm usually in the office no later than 8 a.m. on most days and 8.30, 9 o'clock on days I'm with my kids taking them and handling them. Um, And most nights I'm in the office until seven, eight o'clock at night, um, except for, you know, the couple nights a week that I make sure I'm home. And on certain days of the week, I'll be home by 3 p.m. to spend time with my family and focus on them and then get back on work routine, you know, by eight o'clock at night and focus on work from eight to 10. And I try my best to be in bed, you know, no later than 10, 1030 at night so that I can sort of keep up with the pace that we're trying to keep up with. And it's definitely a lot, um, but it's something that Honestly, I love doing what I do, so it's not a burden to me. It's it's something that I enjoy doing. So you said something really interesting in, in your daily routine. You said between 8 and 8.30, you've kind of got time for yourself. And I came up with a theory that uh, I did a TED Talk on this where I believe that in order to be an innovator or, or creative or kind of thought leadership you need to create structured time in your daily ritual for unstructured thinking. There's a reason why you have your best ideas when you're in, your, in the shower. It's because you are free from distraction. 
you know, your your conscious mind is not responding and reacting, but it's allowed to relax and think and be free to think. And so is that your time? Do you have a time like that? Do you have a structured time for unstructured thinking? A hundred percent. It's something that I actually um, learned from a mentor of mine at a, at a previous firm that without having the appropriate time for yourself, both personally as well as like business-wise, you're constantly under pressure and without having schedule time, you'll never have the, you'll never actually put this system into place. So between eight and eight 30, it's probably the only time that I won't answer phone calls and I won't leave my door open in my office nine times out of 10. That's when I'm able to come up with creative ideas on problems, think thoughtfully about, opportunities that we're looking at in a way that is outside of the box um, or a little bit different than how it's being presented and really gives me an opportunity, honestly, for mental space that I know I'm going to need for the next 12 hours of the day. Awesome. You know, you said you love what you do, which I I believe because you're very passionate about it and um, you do it very well. You know, most people don't know you're originally from South Africa, Johannesburg, which is where I was born. Um, you came here, what, when you were five years old? Yeah, I was actually like two when I came here. Oh, okay. That's why you've lost your accent. And I, yeah, I wish mine. I had an accent. I think I would be much more liked like you. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> your accent's good. Um, but you have, that, you have that very good South African manner about you. You're very calm and charming and... Uh, and a lot of people like you, so that's a good attribute. Um, <laughs> did you play any South African sports growing up, or was were you? Yeah, were so you, const- you know, like yeah. for sure. I mean, like my family. So we were first generation in America, and you know, frankly, grew up with no family other than my immediate family until I was probably twenty-ish when a couple of cousins from overseas moved here. Um, but we grew up in a very European-style house. You know, we grew up strictly playing soccer and rugby. Um, and my family, I have two older brothers and a younger sister. So we were very sports oriented. My father was very sports oriented. So we played a tremendous amount of soccer and we played, I played soccer in high school and a little bit in college and, um, and tennis was a big sport for us, you know, which wasn't as relevant of an American sport, you know, way, you know, 40 years ago. So we, we definitely grew up with that type of sports environment and a lot of European styles to it which was unique. I mean, in hindsight, now looking at it as an adult, it was a very unique upbringing and very different than most people that I know. So I I think that to my parents' credit, they really held true to sort of who they were and what they believed in and, you know, brought up three kids on their own and I'm sorry, four kids on their own in a, in a foreign country and set us up for, you know, hopefully, you know, we set us up for something that's successful and and it was a political environment in South Africa that wasn't stable. And, they took a very early perspective on that and lifted us out of there. Yeah, you've got to take your hats off to them. That's really amazing that they did that. Who's your favorite tennis player? We always grew up, my father's favorite tennis player, which we were forced to love anyway, was Yvonne Lendl. So we, <laughs> we always were big Yvonne Lendl fans, you know, growing up. And then that transitioned into Pete Sampras. Who I who, who was really like my when I was growing up was like the the Michael Jordan of tennis, um, and today I love Djokovic. Really, 
Yeah. Not not Federer or um, I guess I guess Djokovic is kind of from that Lendl lineage. Whereas... Yeah, he has like you know Federer is just a beautiful tennis player and like I I, I appreciate him, but I, I love Djokovic's like you know ground strokes. We were brought up with a lot of ground strokes, and that was sort of like Lendl's thing back in the day. Right. So did you you played on hard courts? I guess. Yeah, we played we played a lot of tennis growing up on hard court. You know, just more for fun because our school really didn't have much of a of a tennis team. Um, and even still today, I play tennis probably, you know, once a week or once every two weeks with some friends for fun. Right. We'll have to get on the court together. I would love to. So, you know, you, you love what you do. When did you decide like you were going to go into real estate? I think you were in pre-med, weren't you? You know, the interesting story is that I actually never thought about doing anything other than becoming a doctor. It was sort of at an early age, a path that I picked and I went to college, I studied pre-med, I took my MCATs, I was sort of gearing up to go to medical school, and I decided to take a year off before medical school um, and ended up working at a hospital in the hospital administration side because my parents had a friend who was running one of the hospitals in Long Island. And while I was there, I just realized that I wasn't really into medicine for the right reasons. I was, I was not there to do what I was watching all these doctors do. It was just sort of a path that for some reason I took very early on. And what happened was that, you know, in that period of time, everyone was trying to get into investment banking. So I put my resume out there and started trying to get a job in investment banking. And the first company that offered me a job happened to be in real estate. And it didn't really matter to me because I had no experience in business anyway. So I took the first job that they gave me and it happened to be in real estate. So that's honestly, I kind of fell into real estate. And once I had the opportunity to sort of start spending some time in it, I started to understand what I really liked about it and the different aspects of it. And it became something that became a real passion of mine. That's amazing. I think you're the third real estate developer that I've spoken to in the last week that started pursuing medicine and landed up going into real estate. That's interesting. <laughs> really interesting. I mean, I like to say that real estate agents were actors, dancers, musicians, or singers. It seems like real estate developers were, you know, in pre-med or med. Very, very interesting. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, do you read a lot? Like books, uh, you know, the, truth, the news? The truth is, I'm not a big reader of books. I'm a big watcher of news. I watch the news every single morning I wake up and every night before I go to sleep. So, I watch a lot of news. I read a fair amount of trade-related items. But other than that, I'm not a big reader. I, I'm a big sports TV watch guy. So like that's a big part of how I grew up, honestly, and a big part of, of sort of my leisure time. But very honestly, like I, I don't have as much time in, in this period of my life as I would like to. And uh, most of my time is either spent sort of with my family or work-related items or with friends. And honestly, like enjoying sports, it's a big part of how I grew up and a big part of sort of my personal interest as well as like a physical release. Right. So who's your favorite sports team? Uh, painfully, I have to say I'm a New York Knicks fan from, you know, through and through. But I got to be <laughs> honest, I'm, an, I'm a New York fan all the way through all sports. And it's, it's been an awful existence for the last five years, at least. Oh, it's going to get better. The Knicks will get their act together. The Giants <laughs> seem to be getting there. So it'll get there. And then, you know, I, I guess just kind of rounding this off, is there 
is there a piece of advice you would give if someone's listening to this and I mean you're young you're what you're in your mid 40s I think right correct so I mean you're still very young but if you had to look back and and give some advice to someone in their mid 20s who was looking at getting into real estate who kind of looked up to you and said all right I want to do what Martin's doing what well, what is one piece of advice you would give them I get asked that question pretty often and I and I think it changes actually as my career has changed it's changed and i think the lesson the, the advice i would give today is i would spend a year in each side of the business and by that i mean in the financial side in the construction side in the management side in the asset management side so you have all the tools that you need and then when you see an opportunity and that opportunity could be on your own or with someone else or with a different firm you have to be willing to take a little bit of risk. Your ability to take risk and digest risk, as well as a little bit of luck, in my opinion, is what leads to places where you're going to be happy. And I think if you're not doing something that you're happy doing, then you need to make a switch around that and put yourself in a place where you're going to be the, mo- the, the best opportunity to be successful. So what is your gauge of happiness? I think... For me, my gauge of happiness is very relevant to my children and my family. So I think that's, for me, it's a very simple answer. Um, But when I was 20 plus years old, I didn't have any of those things. So I think that at that point, it was about growth. It was about knowledge. It was about moving forward within my career. Um, That was what I was really focused on and what made me happy. When I made the right decisions for my career and I felt like I was growing, I felt good about myself. And when those when those things weren't lined up and I, I, I wasn't feeling good about myself. You know, at this stage of my career and my, and, and my life, like the most important thing for me is the happiness of my family and, the where, and just the health and success of them. Right. Well, I mean, that's great advice. And um, thank you for your time. I know, you, you know, you're really busy. I'm sure you've got 50 new deals on your desk right now during this conversation. <laughs> and, and I think you do read. I think you do a lot of reading. I think you read a lot of like books and pro formers. <laughs> That's probably most of your reading stuff. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, but really, I want to thank you for your time. And, um, you know, it's a pleasure working with you as a client. It's really good getting to know you a little bit better. I'm looking forward to playing you on the tennis court, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> just, be, just be gentle on me. Oh, I think you have to be gentle on me. I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than you, so you know you have to go easy on me. But you know, congratulations on all of your success, and you know, wishing you another fifty to sixty years of success in in real estate, at least in the city. And uh, thanks for getting on the phone with me. Yeah, thanks so much for for interviewing me, and I really appreciate it. And I'm very much looking forward to working on our project on the Upper West Side, and hopefully many more in the future. Yeah, um, really looking forward to launching that, which should be soon. So more to come on that and uh, hopefully more projects. But uh, Sounds good. All right, thanks, Martin. All right, talk to you soon. All right, take care. Thank you.